two stories and two petitions from the Lord's Prayer. Story one. We were a few weeks away from our wedding, Kirby and I. It was an August wedding, and I was working in Washington. He was in Alaska. It was a lucky landing of a job for him to fish all summer in Alaska. It was an unlucky landing of a job for me to wash dishes in a daycare facility. But hey, um, it, was a, it was a job. And I was promoted on week two to head chef. Who, who knew I, I was cooking chicken for dinner? We counted down as the weeks went by. I'm in Washington working, he's in Alaska working. We're saving every paycheck to carry us through the next year as students at Walla Walla College. There was an emergency one ordinary day. Though by the time I heard about it, it was mostly over. There was a pain deep in his right side, his abdomen, and a bush pilot and a fisherman loaded Kirby onto a plane and he was on a flight of mercy from Ecook, Ecook is a city, to Anchorage. As they shut the plane door, his boss put $100 in his hands and said, good luck, realizing the fishing gig is done. By the time I heard all of this, Kirby is stitched up and he's soon to be on the next flight to Portland. No one knew the deep despair behind the scenes. It's an entire year's salary for the two of us. We had sewn together our marriage plans based on this income to make it through the final year of college. And, and, and it's a big and, Kirby had no health insurance. Those months between, you know, enrollment as a student when you're off your parents' plan and you're waiting for student insurance and you cross your fingers that nothing goes wrong and then something goes terribly wrong. So he came to Portland with the loss of funds and a large hospital bill. And we got married. Plan B. What's plan B? You grocery shop with a calculator in one hand and you borrow furniture and you accept all the giveaways and you take whatever extra jobs you can find. Both of us worked three jobs as we enrolled in school that fall. And then one day, an envelope arrived in the mail to College Place, Washington. I stood in the front yard and opened this envelope and took out the letter and read, and read, we've taken your hardship into consideration and we're writing to inform you that your account is paid in full. In the driveway that day, overwhelmed, yes. Um, the relief manifested itself first in tears and then showers of disbelief, and then, hey, we resigned one of our three jobs. Story number one. Story number two. This is my parents' cookie jar, the cookie jar of my childhood, the only cookie jar I've actually ever known. Maybe this is an era thing. Did your grandparents have a cookie jar too, or um, maybe where you grew up, the homes you visited on the holidays or in the summertime? This cookie jar, actually, it says cookie barrel. Did you notice that? This cookie barrel was really my father's. It's his favorite thing to eat is cookies. Cookies and milk. What kind of cookies, you ask? Cookies, cookies. Cookie cookies, you know, cookies. Name brand cookies, store brand cookies, 99 cent store brand cookies, homemade cookies. A cookies, a cookies, a cookie. My father's sort of the original cookie monster. So... So much so that it is a more memorial celebration a few years ago. After we said the benediction, we went to the fellowship hall and served cookies and milk. Here's the thing, though, growing up. This cookie jar, it was rarely empty. Any time you slip your hand in, you, you would find something. Any time. The, the problem with a full cookie jar is it simply sits there staring you down. Every time you pass it by, you want to slip your hand in. Now listen, this might not be your temptation, um, what, what's your problem, by the way? 
A full cookie jar might not be your temptation, but it does call out to most kids. Like, like putting trick-or-treat candy on the top shelf of the fridge or hiding it as a, in a closet or a cupboard so they can't reach it. The cookie jar was always hiding in plain sight. When we were young, the cookie jar was my dad's, and he could eat whatever he wanted from this jar, but we had to ask permission. The crazy cookie barrel, it just sat there on the counter like a giant tease. You can't have any. Two stories. And now two final petitions from the Lord's Prayer. Matthew 6, verse 12. Forgive us our debts as we've also forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us to the time of trial, but rescue us from the evil one. These two final petitions are connected, so we'll talk about them that way. This petition, uh, your Bible might translate it in a variety of ways. Forgive us our debts, our sins, our trespasses. We pray it all of these ways. Have you noticed when we pray side by side in church together, you might say trespasses, but your neighbor is saying debts or sins. It's interesting that trespasses is in some of our translations because of one William Tyndale. William Tyndale, the first to translate the Bible into English from Hebrew and Greek texts, the first English Bible to the printing press, the first new English language Bible of the Reformation. And he prefers the word trespasses, which literally means treasonous paces. I mean, this is 16th century England. He's convicted of treason, coincidentally, strangled to death and burned at the stake because, you know, 16th century. Tyndale's translation choice of trespasses has some influence along the years. Most of our Bible translations use the word debt. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven or are forgiving our debtors. First of all, forgive all of us what debt? What is the debt we owe God? Remember, this is a kingdom of God prayer, not a kingdom of the Western world, not a kingdom of our own personal relationships. Kingdom of God, what the earth looks like when heaven exists on earth, when God sits in the power seat, or as Pastor Jason said this week, it was week of prayer on the campus at the university, and Pastor Jason, dressed up in his Dodger blues, take it in for a minute, he describes the kingdom as what God wants to happen happens. The kingdom is where what God wants to happen happens. What is it God wants to happen that, that I've blocked? What do I need forgiveness for? What is my debt to God? Unintentionally or straight up forcefully, forgive me of a debt. A clue to this kind of debt we owe God is the petition, forgive our debts, is connected to the last one that we studied last week. We talked about daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. By the way, you can watch it on the archives if we missed you last week. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts. So we read them together. It's almost in the petition for daily bread that we anticipate we're going to need forgiveness for something. This is a moment to big picture the prayer, church family, that this is not a private personal inventory of all the things you've done wrong, and I hope you're not keeping a list like that. I met a woman a few years ago who kept a list of everything done wrong by me. This prayer is a demand for God to release us from any debt we owe God that's directly connected to the daily bread part. Daily bread and debt, they're the two most common problems for people around Jesus that day, the day he taught this prayer. Debts, they're a result of injustices, not unlike young adults who don't have health insurance. 
and who hope nothing goes wrong. People don't have their daily needs met. They develop debt and a social obligation to one another. We could talk about this, by the way, all afternoon. When we are in debt, we are socially obligated to someone else. In Jesus' day, most personal debt involved outstanding loans and unpaid taxes and a government that didn't erase debts between individuals. Instead, you would sell estates or property. At every economic level, people were in debt. Farmers with poor harvests, now they're in debt. And the elite who defaulted on their loans, now they're in debt. Indebtedness is an occupational hazard to the upper class and is a way of life for the vast majority of people. So they're living from paycheck to paycheck. It's an old way of, of existing. When you don't have access to kind of check into cash, no credit card on file, no parents or grandparents you can call, you're sold to the creditors as a serf or a servant. You'll lose your freedom. More than 300 years until, uh, about 300 years after Jesus, the Roman government decides to make debt bondage illegal um, because it's causing so much social chaos, right? Debt is a big business, and in Jesus' day, it's skewed towards the creditor. But in Jesus' history, the Israelite tradition, debt is skewed towards the debtor's protection. Huge difference. Every seven years, debts are canceled, freeing people from unresolved debt. Jesus was taught this probably as a little boy. It's the Levitical law. The community is to step in with food and relief for those in debt. Don't think this was without hiccups as well, though, because creditors were reluctant to lend money year four, five, six, before the end of that seventh year cycle. What are the odds I'm going to get my money back? I'll just hold off making loans until year one. In 66 AD, when revolutionaries torched Jerusalem, it included setting fire to the archives where the records of the loans and the contracts are kept. It's another way to free the people. No one has any record of who owes debt to whom. So when Jesus teaches the disciples to ask for debt forgiveness, it carries all of these experiences together. It's kind of a haunting metaphor. Social economics and spirituality can't be separated. God is not underwriting the economy of debt, by the way, and repayment. He's not underwriting all of this. He's not, God's not writing a bigger check. God is restructuring things from top to bottom to defeat what people suffer. So our acts of forgiveness in the world, when we release and are, are released, these acts of forgiveness, they're really down payments on God's kingdom to come that justice will eventually be distributed in such a way that suffering is erased. This is a huge amen moment. God is restructuring from top to bottom. Everyone eats, everyone has enough, every relationship from plant to plate to palate, and along the way, all these relationships will be honored. When I've blocked any one of these relationships, that's when I owe a debt to God because I didn't care for what God cared about, and I didn't honor what God honors. I think we'll spend a lifetime working on this. I really believe so. Someone might want to ask in this petition, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Do we really want forgiveness to come into a, to us in proportion to the forgiveness we extend? Did I really want it to be proportional? Did we want to pray this part of the prayer? Forgive me as I extend forgiveness, God, because I can answer that pretty sharply. I'm a little close-handed on forgiveness, and God is not. 
God is not. It's forgiven people who forgive people. And so perhaps the clause of this prayer is a confession that we don't yet trust we're forgiven and release, released. And, it's more, and, and we struggle to release other people from our grasp. It's among one of the most freeing exercises, the most healing experiences for well-being to release people. This is really a scandal in the petition on forgiveness. Jesus is teaching humans, you don't have to go to the temple to be forgiven. We get it from God. God forgives us and then tells us to forgive one another 70 times 7, which is a, another way of saying stop counting and keeping track. Be the forgiveness people, disciples of Jesus. Be the forgiveness people. When Kirby and I did get married, one of the, must have been the pastor who performed our wedding, said to us, when you have a disagreement, the best thing to do is to, to simply apologize first. Even if it's not your fault, apologize, because then you'll get it out on the table, and it'll break the ice, and it'll be a way forward. And we found ourselves competing to say, I'm sorry, no, I'm sorry, no, I'm sorry. Excuse me, I'm sorry first, because we knew it wasn't our fault, right? We're pretty closed-handed on forgiveness. Anyone can hold grudges. Anyone can remain angry and hurt and nurture hostilities. We are not anyone. We are disciples. And as God releases us, we release one another. Be the forgiveness people, Jesus says in this petition. It turns out the, the last petition is also connected here. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And there's another and here. And do not bring us to the time of trial, but rescue us from the evil one, Matthew 6, 13. To see, there's another and there, which insists we read these prayers together. These phrases are connected. There's an accumulation in the last part of the prayer. It means it's not a brand new idea. It's intensified. It's more of the same. It's a little bit deeper. It's as if to warn us that the Bible has already testified, and history screams, really. Things get dark in this world. We need rescue, and we need deliverance. Your Bible translation may say, lead us not or bring us not into temptation or bring us not to the trial or to the test or the testing time or the final test, but deliver us or save us or keep us or rescue us from evil or evil personified the evil one. It's honest to say that this last petition is a little bit mysterious uh, and it's been translated many different ways and we make an educated guess of what Jesus means by this. Let me be as clear as possible about what I think this cannot mean. If we must plead God not take us into temptation, what kind of a God is this? And why waste our time teaching us to pray to God as our Father, as our heavenly, holy parent, as the caretaker of the entire universe, except when leading little children on dark paths into deep temptations and testing? God's our tempter? Like, setting out a cookie jar for little children and bigger traps for bigger children. Church family, it runs contrary to the truth of Scripture that God delights in tempting or testing or causing trials. That runs contrary to the truth of Scripture. The overarching witness of the Bible is that God is love. The world doesn't run on temptation. God doesn't delight in playing high-stake games with God's children. Whatever evil you're caught in, friends, it's not a game at the hands of God. Great philosophical debates happen at this intersection, and they're important. Conversations on the nature of evil and the reality of evil and how evil got into God's good story 
important conversations. And on this point, I will not budge. God is love, which means God is safe. So God can't be playing games with us. The witness of history and the witness of scripture, they're both clear that God's not preventing every trial either. You can tell me this from your own homes. God's not preventing every trial. Otherwise, we wouldn't have them. So I read, rescue us, deliver us from evil as a reality check. We all need rescue from evil, from evil within that we nurture, from the evil outside that comes to us. We need rescue from evil embedded in the society and the way we've set up kingdoms of this world. I listen to a good portion of Riverside City Council almost every Tuesday from downtown City Hall, and I watch the citizen comment thread. It is among the most discouraging things I do every week. Why? Because it's often mean, it's often hateful and vile. A popular gripe on this gripe of the citizens is, why are there so many homeless people running around our neighborhoods? Clean it up, send them away, get them out, make it safer, make this better. Why do you love the homeless so much, Riverside? Why is it no one on the thread is asking the question about evil and systemic evil and procedures and systems and institutions and policies that somehow leave some of the citizens in our city in extreme need? The Lord's Prayer teaches Christians to ask those questions. Why resources aren't delivered more equitable and why some people will only survive with what I call deep mercy. Everyone needs rescue from evil, everyday evils like loneliness and deep discouragement, a little larger evils like depression and addiction and chronic unemployment and poverty and big picture evils like war and violence and hate and murder and devastating environmental destruction and, and, and. We pray for the release of every kind of evil while we are experiencing it, friends. So I've come to think of this final petition as essentially telling God, don't let it get so dark that we can't see you. Don't let it get so dark we lose the vision of your kingdom. There's an unshakable presence of God in the midst of all of this. Matthew's gospel insists it begins and it ends with a God who is with us and God who will never leave us or forsake us even till the end of the world. When we come to points of exhaustion and depletion and we have no more tricks up our sleeve, the, the, these are moments that it's clear we rely on God, not ourselves. And God is ever-present. Paul says it this way in Romans 8, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing, nothing, no temptation, no evil. When we pray, deliver us from evil, then we are hoping forward. We're claiming tomorrow's hope today, even from the middle of trials that we bear, we give witness to another reality that's right up ahead. Nadia Boltz-Weber, thank you, several of you sent me this last week her paraphrase of the Lord's Prayer on, the, this, on this idea, deliver us from evil. Here's her paraphrase. Deliver us from the inclination that we too do not have evil in our hearts. Deliver us from religious and national and sexual and gender exceptionalism. Deliver us from addiction and depression. Deliver us from self-loathing and deliver us from high fructose corn syrup while you're at it. Deliver us from Western individualism. Deliver us from fear. Deliver us from a complete lack of imagination about where you are in our lives and how you might already be showing up. 
deliver us from complacency and deliver us from complicity. And, and she concludes her paraphrase by saying, we're not asking nicely, God. We are throwing a bag of prayers at your door. We're your children, and we're claiming your promises as your own today. Uh, I'm so grateful for her grit and her guts in this prayer. We find ourselves standing at this cultural moment wanting to throw a prayer at the doorstep of God. We are over it, as Pastor, pray, as Pastor Raywin prayed earlier. We are simply over it. We're over our exhaustion, and we're over our division, and we're over being outraged. We're over our grief. We're over the amount of loss we feel. We're over a lack of solutions. We're over no end in sight. We're over feeling out of control. We're over feeling over it. But friends, take a big breath and, and join us on Monday night, Election Eve Prayers. On Monday at 7 p.m., we'll open up the Zoom platform and we'll gather and we'll pray together and we'll name it and ask for God's intervention. But, but it turns out, even while we feel all of this in this cultural moment as citizens of this country on Election Eve, we are not victims in God's stories. We are children and heirs and partners and co-creators and residents and citizens of one large human family. The universe isn't against us. God isn't against us. Life happens, and it happens to be heavy right now. Whether I feel like I have the energy for this or not might not be the most useful measurement because there is a God who has energy for these moments. Thank God there is a God who has energy for these moments. Jesus gives us this prayer to teach us that there is an intervention from God and there's a partnership, a collaboration with humans that matters. The Lord's Prayer, it's our identifying badge, and T. Wright says. The Lord's Prayer, it puts our Jesus filter first. The Lord's Prayer puts our faith filter first. The Lord's Prayer puts our allegiance to God's kingdom first. The Lord's Prayer puts our allegiance to one another next. And then this prayer will put distance between our allegiance to all other ideas and platforms and parties and candidates. It will intentionally put distance the Lord's Prayer can help us in this cultural moment. So let's conclude with Martin Luther King's paraphrase. It's another paraphrase of a kind of the Lord's Prayer, I believe. Martin Luther King Jr. who says, Humanity is created to shine like the stars and live on through all eternity. Martin Luther King insists it's through the church's partnership in the world that this happens the best. Listen and be blessed by this prayer. Lord, we thank you for your church founded upon your word that challenges us to do more than sing and pray. but go out and work as though the very answer to our prayers depends on us and not upon you. Help us to realize that humanity was created to shine like the stars and live on through all eternity. 
Keep us, we pray, in perfect peace. Help us to walk together. Pray together. Sing together. And live together until that day when all God's children will rejoice in one common band of humanity in the reign of our Lord and of our God. We pray. Amen.